All right, I'm going to come down here and work on my suntan a little bit. That will work. Why don't you turn to the book of Philippians, if you would, chapter 1. I need, I need uh, a little poll help here. P-O-L-L survey help. I need you to see if, uh, if my hair looks like Donald Trump. What do you think? Is it close? I don't want it to be. Okay. Would you do me a favor? Would you tell Paula? I hear her out there in the lobby. Are you listening, honey? Okay. She told me I had to get a haircut. <clears throat> we were watching television the other night. She said, look, you see that guy right there? And it wasn't him. It was somebody else. She said, that's how you need to cut your hair. Your hair looks like Donald Trump. So, yeah. Well, turn to Philippians chapter 1. Now, Brother Tim, when I look, I think about it. Yours does look like Trump a little bit. You look like my pants. You've got the pants. Doesn't he look like my pants? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, you do. It's like silver, real distinguished. Look, yeah. Okay, you're welcome. Philippians chapter one. Let's let's finish this on uh, on criticism tonight. I think this will help you. I hope it will. One of the things that's hard for any leader to learn is uh, how to uh, persist in criticism. Somebody told young pastors that uh, if you're going to remain in the ministry, that you have to learn to have a tough tough hide and a tender heart um, because that's what it's going to take. Someone said that if you don't want to be criticized, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. So it is important that uh, not just leaders but everybody, criticism is going to come, know how to respond to criticism. But it's not the purpose of the message in the text tonight, uh, the deeper need is how not to allow criticism to rob you of joy. So you may not be a, a leader as such. I think everybody leads in, in certain areas. But you are criticized. And um, the longer the criticism, depending on who it's from, and the nature of it can really set you back. And hurt you and also uh, steal your joy if you permit it. And that's what the passage here is about. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is it's just a, a raw book. That's one of the reasons we know that God wrote it. He didn't hide the warts and sins of his people. Uh, you read this, and if man would have read it, he would have left some stuff out. You know, even the books that David read under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I wonder if he said, now, Lord, I'd rather not put that in there. I said, no, we're going to put that one in there. But you know that God put that because we needed to hear it. Well, part of the rawness uh, of the genuineness of the Scriptures is it, it tells us things that we need to know. And we come to this section, we'll read the passage. It's not very long. I'm just going to give you one key thought tonight. That these, these people, that Paul had, some had won to Christ uh, directly, perhaps, but all of them, 
uh, he had led to Christ indirectly, and because of petty, excuse me, pettiness and jealousy. I like to invent words up here. Pettiness, pettiness. That's why I'm sitting down and I hadn't had any medication. Maybe I need to take it. Rubber baby buggy bunkers. Um, because of pettiness and jealousy, they they were criticizing him. And when I was uh, I was thinking about that this week, I thought that how ironic that the people that were after him, that were criticizing him and angry with him, that they lost their joy. But the guy they were after didn't lose his joy. Isn't that something? That's worth just stopping thinking about. The guy that they wanted to upset didn't get upset. And he had peace in the midst of the storm. But the people that were angry and bitter and jealous, and they were professing Christians, that they lost their joy. So let's read, read this section here. And notice in Philippians chapter 1. And you'll see all of these come out here. Notice in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife. Those are the group there that was opposed to him. They were preaching the truth. There was another crowd that preached of goodwill. And then there was a crowd that preached Christ's contention. They were causing problems. Not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Remember, he was in prison. Then there was another crowd, the other of love. Uh, they knew his situation. They supported him because they knew that Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. And here's the summary. He says, now what am I going to do with all this information? What am I going to do with this station in my life when, when I'm being hit by some people that, uh, that ought to love me, that I love minimally? What then notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense, that's the group that was against him, or in truth, the group that was for him. Christ is preached. So Jesus is being preached by both groups. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. So here's the, here's the thought that he gives there in verse 18. That joy is not found in how the people perceive you or in how people treat you. That's hard. Because we like for um, our, our family and our friends to treat us right, perceive us right, and understand us. Joy is not found in that. Joy is found in Jesus. Joy is found in our relationship with the Lord. Joy is found in contentment in our circumstances. It's not found in proper treatment and our perception of that. It's found in our relationship with the Lord. Now, I'm not going to go through these because I've, I've preached on this and taught from this passage. The principles here, number one, criticism comes to the best of people. Paul wrote this, and he was the greatest Christian that ever lived. Some people say it was Jesus. Well, Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was a Christ. Criticism comes to the best of people. Number two, criticism is a symptom. The Bible says that the root of it was envy. And there were some other things there. Whenever someone is critical, it's just the surface. Something's underneath it. Number three, criticism is softened by remembering those that support you. Um, we always hear the critic's voice so out us. And that's the last thing we remember. Remember people are for you. And that's why it's important when I taught on that, that you need to speak louder. You need to write more. You need to emphasize that no more because that person is hearing from the devil. He's hearing from enemies. 
And so you need to speak up and let them know uh, that, that you support them in the good things that you see. And here's the obvious conclusion here tonight, and the whole, really the whole point of the passage, but I want to give a context. And that's why I spent time. I counted uh, today, uh, as we've gone through this, and this is really not a virtue, but it's a fact. Uh, there are 34, 34 type pages of notes on those, on those four, four verses. Uh, some of you guys won't get this. I'd been a good Reformed Baptist when uh, those guys like to study and go deep and so forth. You can edit that out there, Brother Day. Criticism cannot kill our joy. Now get this, listen carefully. Not only can criticism not kill our joy, now get this because this is really the issue, nor can the absence of criticism cause our joy. See, that's the problem. The reason that criticism kills our joy is because we think not being criticized brings joy. And it has nothing to do with it. Joy is the presence of Jesus. It has nothing to do with being criticized or not being at a place in life when people are happy with you. Uh, Joy doesn't come with acceptance of others. It comes from the presence of Jesus. Now look at verse 18. Let's spend some time there and then I want to give you some verses and we'll go home here. After he talks about this problem and this issue in the church of being opposed by, by friends even, verse, the two words in verse 19 are very profound. And, and I think this shows how it affected Paul. He says, what then? What am I going to do about this? Um, and, and you think about the natural reactions that, that, I, that I would have at least, maybe you and I would want to fight back. To justify myself, to explain myself. But um, these things just cause you to lose more joy. There may come a time and a place for that. But Paul said, no, I'm not going to, to fight back. I'm, I'm not going to do that. And, and, and sometimes we engage in activities that just dig the hole deeper. We, we, don't, we don't have any joy. I'm, I remember telling my kids... When they get in trouble or they, they weren't making wise choices, I said, let me, let me give you this, the truth. So the first rule of getting out of a hole is to stop digging. And the first rule of, of having joy is to stop going to the sources that don't produce joy. And joy doesn't come from having good things in your life or good circumstances, or, or even the absence of bad circumstances, of not being criticized. How are you doing? Oh, man, I'm, I'm really doing good. Everybody's saying good things, so forth. Well, what are you going to do when bad things come? If you don't have joy now, when the storms come, joy is found in the presence of Jesus. Verse 18, what then, notwithstanding every way, in every single incident, in spite of what is happening, the title of these messages is joy in spite of criticism. Notwithstanding, what then? Notwithstanding, in every single incident, whether in pretense, these guys that were fakes, to be honest, that's the word he's using there, insincere, or in truth, and I told you that's not the content of the gospel, 
but the attitude of the messenger, that they were sincere. He says, I'm focused. Here it is. I'm focused on Christ. I'm focused on the messenger, not the, or, I'm sorry, I'm focused on the message, not the messenger. And here he goes. He says, I therein, in, in, in that reality, I therein, because of Christ, is being preached. And here's what he says. I therein, present tense, do rejoice right now. Yea, and in future tense, our future will rejoice. Two times there he says, I do now rejoice, and in the future I will rejoice again over the same situation. Now, the natural response is to want to fight back, to be depressed, to justify yourself. The supernatural result is to to rejoice. Um, I like the the expression there um, in verse 18 when he says, I therefore do rejoice. The, the book of Psalms says, I, I, I choose to rejoice. I will rejoice. David said that many times. I will rejoice. And uh, there's some good songs written, but Tim has one that I like a lot. And I think that it is true that you say, I, uh, I will make the choice to rejoice. You choose to rejoice. But that, that's, that's a partial truth. It is true. But you must go to the proper object. You can't just have the power of positive thinking and say, well, I'm going to choose to rejoice today by thinking happy thoughts. You've got to go to the, the fountain of joy, which is Jesus. And then I can rejoice now, and I can rejoice tomorrow, and I can rejoice the next day. This morning, I was uh, uh, coming to the church, and I don't know if it was because of the wedding. It, it wasn't the wedding. It was just some circumstances around it. And I was really tired. And I always listen to music driving in to kind of encourage me, just, just you know, strengthen my spirit. And so uh, back-to-back songs on the, the Pandora channel I was listening to. Uh, the first one was There's a River. You know that song, some of you, don't you? You ever listen to the words of that? Of course, it references John 7 when Jesus said that uh, they had a special holiday then, a holy day as they called it, and water was involved and so forth. But he said, there, there's a river that dwells within. Man, I listened to that in that chorus, and I just thought about, uh, thought about that fountain I'm driving into church from the house this morning. My body's tired. I said, man, what am I going in here to preach? You know, I, I can't hardly talk, much less I'm not even going to be able to put forth the, the energy that this message deserves and, and our church deserves. And uh, my meager resources, like the little boy that had the lunch that gave it to Jesus. But there's a river. There's a river that I have. John 7. And, um, and, and the river, the Holy Spirit of God, He flows. And, I, and that song finished. Brother Don, I said, that's a good song. I like that reality. My heart smiled, and I thought, what a, what a good truth, and talked to the Lord about it. And then another song came on right after that, and it was, it was about, uh, uh, it was a river type song too, in your heart. We, we have the capacity to have joy in any given situation. Joy is not because you're the absence of suffering or the absence of criticism or the absence of, 
of you know being overdrawn in your bank account or the absence of whatever the absence of a negativity joy is the presence of Jesus here in the passage he shows the importance of the message the message over the messenger what then notwithstanding every way whether in pretense or in truth Christ is preached Christ is preached and I therein in that fact do rejoice yea and will rejoice I'm going to rejoice in the message over the messenger these guys that were preaching I, I really struggle with this I've told you this they had wrong motives Paul in this instance didn't, didn't defend himself because that was not his purpose one he was in prison couldn't do much about it but he said, I'm going to focus on the gospel. I'm going to focus on giving the gospel and not on defending myself. Now listen, gang, whenever you get an agenda where you've got to fix something, you have to defend yourself or, or, or whatever, you lose your joy. Every time, 100%. And your eyes get off of Jesus and your eyes get on your problem and you lose your joy. Because you can't fix it sometimes. Things happen, some bad things happen. And, and all of a sudden it just bottoms out and you lose your joy. Now I want to show you um, the, fa- the fact, and I want to spend a few minutes here. I want to give, I was telling Tim the, yesterday, I want to balance this truth out. Because I've heard some people take this passage and say, see, all that matters is Jesus is preached. I'm happy. It doesn't matter if, you know, you have church in a, in a beer par- parlor and everybody's drinking beer afterwards. Jesus is preached. It doesn't matter if you're rocking out and, you know, whatever. Jesus is preached. Now, I can rejoice in Jesus being preached and I can rejoice in, in conversion. But, but, but there are some biblical boundaries. And I've heard some people defend behaviors from this text. And what I want to do, because every, every text has a balancing text. And so I want to show you that the primary thrust of this is, is, is Paul's joy. But I also want to show you some, some verses that are crucial here that will help you. Paul wrote to the Romans, and uh, they had some problems with uh, eating meat that had been offered to idols. You know, that had to do with activities that were questionable. Especially young Christians would get converted and they would say, that, that meat's been offered to an idol. And you went into the market, First Corinthians calls them the shambles, where, the, where it, uh, they'd had a, it doesn't mean what you, in your mind, it was just a location in the city. And uh, they would go there and buy that meat at a really good reduced rate. It was grade A meat. And then they would see them there. they say, that, that's idol meat. That's why he said in Corinthians 8, he said, there, there's, no, there's only one God. And so you had people that had a strong conscience and people that had a weak conscience. People that had a strong conscience, educated conscience, Hebrews 5 said, is by the word of God. That they could eat that meat because they knew there was no other false idol. And they felt like, that. well, I'm just getting a good bargain on it. People that had a weak conscience that were offended by it, and they said, well, I can't eat that because God would be displeased with me. And he deals, he gives, I think, five chapters in the Bible just to this issue 
of questionable activities. And we need to watch this thing because a lot of people in the church don't do this anymore. They just kind of do what they want to do. Uh, and case hurrah, hurrah. And here's what happened. People that had a strong conscience that could partake in the activity, they began to, the Bible says, have an attitude of naught, N-O-U-G-H-T, of nothing. No, it's nothing. Get off me. Come on. Grow up. People that had a weak conscience, they began to judge the other people. Say, you're wrong. You can't do that. That's sin. And so in the same church, you had, you had problems. And so he wrote to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 and a little bit in chapter 10. And then he wrote Romans chapter 14 and 15. That's what those chapters are for. When we quote about uh, the judgment seat, uh, we take a part out. But part of the judgment seat had to do with that issue in Romans 14. Look at Romans 14. Look at verse 7. Let me read this to you. Paul said, None of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. In other words, it's not about you. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Now get this. It's, it's about the Lord. It's what he wants. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore die. Here, here it is. We belong to the Lord. We are the Lord's. And then he hits the nail again from a different angle. For to this end, to this purpose, Christ died and rose and revived that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. So the idea there is he's the Lord. If you're dead, he's the Lord. If you're living, he's the Lord. Christ is the Lord. And then he, and then he makes the application. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Now, who's he talking to? He's talking about people with a weak conscience. Why are you having a critical spirit towards them? Why dost thou set it not thy brother? He's talking about people who have strong conscience. Why, why are you just have such an attitude of dismissal towards other Christians that are sincere? And they can't partake of that activity. And you just, you call them legalistic. Why are you doing this? He's hitting both crowds right between the eyes with it. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Who's right? Paul, you know what he does? He, he doesn't say because he can't give a single issue. He says you better think about that activity. Whether you abstain from it or you partake of it in view of the judgment seat. Now I'm coming back to Philippians 1. Because Paul is not. By the way, Paul wrote Philippians 1. When he said that, hey, I just rejoice in Christ. He also wrote Romans 14 on the inspiration. Paul wrote this. He wrote both of them. And so here's what he's saying. He said, the issue is Christ and the judgment seat. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us, you won't stand there with your family. You won't stand there with your church. Uh, you won't stand there with your best friends. You will stand there by yourself. So then every one of us shall give account of himself. Shall give account. Uh, if you study that, I believe that means that you'll make a speech there. It means you'll talk. You'll give a response. It's not just like the Lord's going to kind of read this real fast, some mundane thing. You'll, you'll, you'll have to respond. 
This is not going to be fireworks and clapping. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be reward, but there's going to be some tears here. I've heard some well-meaning people say, well, there's not going to be any tears in heaven. It wouldn't be heaven. Well, that sounds good. But in Revelation chapter 20, the Bible says, we're already in heaven. The Revelation, the, the rapture's already happened. That in chapter 4, chronologically in Revelation, Revelation 20, you have the great white throne judgment. Where lost people are cast into hell. And guess who's there? And then that's in chapter 20. In the chapter 21 and verse 4, the Bible says, God shall wipe away all tears. That's in heaven. There's going to be tears in heaven. And I believe there will be tears at the judgment seat. Every tongue shall confess to God, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore. (laughs) Basically, he said, cut it out. Stop it. Both of you. He says, stop it. You legalists, stop it. You permissive people, stop it. It's about the gospel. It's about the ministry. And you're holding on to your rights. He says, stop. He said, if you want to be a judge, judge this. That no man, this is inspired scripture, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. He says, you be really hard on yourself to make sure that what you do will not cause another person to fall. I'm amazed today at what people today put on, put on Facebook that can hurt other Christians. Professing Christians. Sometimes they'll put a little funny thing and it has cursing on it. And I wonder how many, how many believers or, or teenagers or young people in church say, well, and you don't do this. You don't have a Facebook. Well, let's say Brother Charlie, I can pick on him. He sure won't get one after this. But let's say Brother Charlie did that and his class saw it. Well, okay. I can do that. Because what he does in moderation, they're going to do in excess. You better be careful. Now, this is not this is not Rick's philosophy. This is biblical theology. I have enough on my plate to give an account to God without trying to run the guy's ministry down the street. I have enough on this plate as the under shepherd, according to Hebrews chapter thirteen, that I will give an account of Hebrews thirteen seventeen before Jesus one day. I have to give an answer to. To be writing a, a paper or get on the internet and run down another preacher. So I'm going to teach the word of God as plain as I can in here. So, so Philippians 1 is not just a, a permissive text. It is a protective text for your joy. Basically, it, it's, Philippians 1 is personal, but it's not within the confines of the local church. You need to protect the church. But personally, quit trying to fight everybody. So what it, just enjoy your relationship with the Lord. There is a time to rebuke and warn others when they cause division within a local church. That's one of the conditions for church discipline. 
Notice these verses, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look. That's interesting. It starts there. And, and notice, notice it doesn't say pride. It's an evidence of pride. A proud look. Isn't that something? Proverbs and Psalms talk about a high look. A high, you know, sometimes we, uh, pride is communicated to us and we, don't, we can't even put it into words. I just feel like that guy or that woman, that they're arrogant. Do you, do you, have, a, do you have a proud look? Do you have a high look? That doesn't mean just because a person bows their head, they're humble. You can be proud and pretentious. But we need to watch that a pride manifests in a proud, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. That goes back to what I preached this morning. God hates that. Abortion. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift to running to mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies. Notice how many of these talk about the tongue and lying. And here's what I want you to see. And he, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. The book of Acts of the early church was in one accord. Here, here are men, women, could be young people too, that are sowing discord. Now words are important. When you sow something, what does that mean? That means it doesn't immediately reap I sow something that will reap later I give an innuendo I give an impression or I create a question in your mind that could reap in discord later he that sows discord among Christians God says I hate that now Paul here's what Paul is doing in Philippians 1 he said I have joy these guys are hammering me, and I love Christ. I love the gospel. You know what God's view of what, the, what, of what they were doing? The, these, this one crowd that was opposing and criticizing Paul. Now, this is what God says. I'm quoting God. He says, I hate that. That's an abomination to me. You're sowing discord among the brethren. I'm giving the balance perspective here. This is heaven's view. God said, I don't like that. But it didn't, Paul didn't let that remove his joy. That's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard. Again, Paul wrote this, Romans 16, verses, it's interesting. He was in, the church at Rome was calling, causing him the problems. And he wrote this to the Romans earlier. In Romans 16, 17, and 18, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. Mark them. It means identify them. It means there comes a time says, Hey, I want you to notice that so-and-so has been sending emails in the church. You may get notice. There's a time. Thank God we've never had to do that in our church. But there's a time, there's a place for it. Paul didn't have to go about that. He was just happy. But if he was the pastor of the church, there may come a time to do that. And even as a pastor, you can't let that rob you of your joy. It's hard. Mark them, which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. Number one, mark them. Number two, avoid them. The word avoid means to deviate from. It means not to socialize with. It means don't hang around them. 
young people and old people, medium age people. Uh, you, you are the, the sum total of your five closest friends. And you, you become like them in your worldview, in your language, your interests, your ideas. And uh, if you are around critical people, you're going to become a critical person. You're going to be thinking those things. And then he says, for these people that are such not, they serve not our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, they're not about Jesus, but their own belly, their own interests. And by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. They talk a good talk, but they're deceptive to people that aren't thinking this thing through. Mark them, avoid them. Plain speech, Paul. Adam Clark, the Methodist commentator, said about this passage of Scripture many hundreds of years ago. He said, let them have no kiss of charity, nor peace, because they strive to make divisions. Pretty powerful. Let them have no kiss of charity, nor peace, because they strive to make divisions, and thus set the flock of Christ at variance against themselves, And from these, divisions are produced. This is contrary to the doctrine of peace, unity, and brotherly love, which you have learned. Avoid them and have no religious fellowship with them. Once again, it seems like the messages are opposed to each other. Paul's not even interested in that. He says, well, they're over here. I'm just going to rejoice in Christ. Here's what I'm not saying tonight. I'm not saying Philippians 1.18 says you stick your head in the sand, especially if you're a spiritual leader. So if you ever hear that, the pastor, the bishop, has a responsibility to protect the health of the church. But you also must protect your own health, listen, your own spiritual health, and don't get caught up in these turf battles. Because joy doesn't come in the absence of conflict. It doesn't come in the presence of conflict. Joy comes from Christ. I'll give you two other passages. Paul wrote both of these. This is the same Paul that wrote Philippians 1.18. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, this, this letter, this teaching, note that man. Now we saw that earlier, didn't we? Mark him in Romans 16, 17. We get the word notice. Notice that man. Identify that man or woman. And have no company with him. Where company means to mix. It really comes like a recipe where you mix up ingredients. Don't don't be closely affiliated. You're not better than them. But don't spend time with them. It's It's not helping you. You're going to become like them. You don't do that that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy. But admonish him as a brother. Whenever you get mixed up with a jealous, angry, petty person, you'll get infected with his sins. Then Paul wrote this in Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. A man that is an heretic. We think a heretic is someone that's rejected the orthodox doctrines. And that is what it means. The word here in Titus 3, heretic, means to to force a choice. And... uh, it not only applies to orthodox doctrines, but also secondary issues. And here's the idea. Whose side are you on? It's a political maneuver in a church. Whose side are you on? 
It's the idea of an obstinate, reckless person that comes and he's like a bull in a china shop. The Bible says, admonish him the first time. Admonish him the second time. Talk to him. Love him. If he's still not listening, then reject him. And by the way, these, these are church epistles, pastoral epistles on how to run the church. The word reject there means to avoid, to refuse to associate with. This is, is this the St. Paul that wrote Philippians 1.18? Yeah, I'm, I'm giving you the balance. A man that just is causing trouble. After you talk to him, give him a chance, give him another chance. And you know, they're so headstrong. No, we're running this campaign. And they may not even be after your head. They're after somebody else's. You know, I think it's time for you to maybe if you don't want to. If this is not the place for you, you need to go somewhere else. We've had that a couple of times in our church, not a lot. But where people have been angry. They've been bitter over my staff. They've come to me, sometimes me personally. Usually they talk to, about me to other people. They talk, about, they talk to me about my staff. And, uh, and I know they've been saying things they shouldn't say. You can't, you can't do that. Matthew 18, you have a problem with them, you go see them. And so forth. This is not the right way to handle this. When a person is a scorner in an organization, they destroy the organization, whether it's a team, a business, a church. But the Bible says in Proverbs 22.10, cast out the scorner and contention shall go out. Real plain. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. And what I want you to understand about that verse is it's not plural. It only takes one. Cast out the guy, cast out the girl, cast out the woman, cast out the person. Church I grew up in, we had a scorner. Brother Mike, my mom were there. They they knew who I'm talking about because everybody knew who it was. It caused my pastor a lot of heartache. It's a woman. I remember uh, it was the second pastor after my pastor left. She was still in the church. And uh, I was there the night. My pastor got in, in the book of Revelation. Actually, I was serving in another church. My membership was elsewhere, but it's my home church. So it looks like my church. And he got in there on, on Jezebel. And he said, Jezebel. So now, you know, we can have a Jezebel in our church. Oh, I like this. Somebody calling her name. Everybody knew who he's talking about. Now, personally, personally, I think she needs to be saved. She had a problem with spiritual authority. She had a problem with God's authority. And it just ran her mouth all the time. Caused so much trouble in the church. Cast out the scorner, whoever he, she is, contention. It's amazing. Strife is gone. Reproach, reproach. But even in the middle of this, you can't let that rob you of your joy. 
Proverbs 26, 20, and 21, where no wood is, the fire goes out. Where there is no tail-bearer, the strife ceaseth. As coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. So Paul is, is focusing in on the purity of the gospel. Let me, I'm skipping some being here for time's sake. I want you to look at uh, chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. Remember, Paul was in prison, and God had allowed him the sacred privilege of winning some of the guards to Christ. Philippians 4, verse 21. He writes back to his friends there at Philippi, Philippians 4, 21. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. They that are of Caesar's household. Huh. Some of Caesar's relatives got saved. The Praetorian Guard, some of the the crack troops had gotten saved while Paul was in prison. Paul's mission that God had put him there, he won these people to Christ. Now I want to ask you a question. What if Paul was in prison and he'd gotten word, because obviously he had, because he wrote about it in Philippians 1, about all the political activity going on in the church there at Rome and his opposition. Now, now stay with me. It's important. What if he had gotten angry about what was going on? And he lost his joy inside of prison. And he's attached to these guards by an 18-inch chain, 24-7. And rather than being a blessing, he becomes irritated and negative and fearful. He would have lost his influence and the very purpose that God put him for, he would have missed it. You see, your mission is not just what you're supposed to do, it's who you're supposed to be. And you can't fulfill what you're supposed to do if you're not the type of person you're supposed to be. So when Paul had this joy, it enabled him to fulfill his mission. Remember, uh, and I don't do this anymore, but one night I finished preparing my message and I read something uh, on the internet about a, a well-known preacher. I won't mention his name, just you'll know why in a minute. That had fallen into sin. And it grieved my heart. I, I didn't sleep all night. It troubled me. He preached at my college graduation. And I, I loved him. And he had, he had sinned in a, in a very grievous way. All sin is grievous, but this was especially grievous. He, uh, he was very close to, to Price Harris, and Price and I talked about it. And you could just hear the, the grief in Price's voice, too. I mean, he was just so broken over it. And I remember Price said something that really helped me. He said, you know, Rick, uh, it doesn't change the truth that he preached. And that helped me. It doesn't change the truth he preached. Never doubt your salvation or your Christian experience because of frailty of the human vessel that delivered it. Preachers will disappoint you. But Jesus will never disappoint you. 
Paul said, I, I rejoice in the gospel. We had a visitor here in our church years ago. And uh, he was a single guy. He came to our church and I took him out. He attended our church for a while and then he moved. And uh, so I took him out to eat and I said, well, tell me about your salvation experience. And he was a little embarrassed about it. I thought, well, I've never met anybody who's embarrassed of salvation experience. And uh, he said, well, he said, have you ever heard of, and he looked at me square in the eye across the table, and he mentioned a faith healer, a very popular faith healer. I said, yeah. He said, I got saved in one of his meetings. And he said, I know what you're thinking. He said, I know you're, you're, you're thinking that, well, that, that guy, boy, he does a lot of things that are silly. And he said, you're right. And he said, that's why I don't believe what they believe anymore. He said, furthermore, not only did I get saved in this meeting, I used to work for him. I said, you did what you do. He said, I used to work uh, in the part when he would heal people. I said, uh, I got my pen out. And I said, what did you do? Tell me about it. I didn't do that. He said, well, you know, on the stage... And that when they come up there and they're standing and so forth, he said, my role is when this preacher would uh, want them to, quote, be slain in the spirit or to fall over. He said where they were standing, the preacher was standing apart from them. But he said, I was underneath. This was in Huntsville, not where this, where this guy was telling me this story. And... Uh, he said, my role was to put a small jolt of electricity through the base of where those people stood. And I said, you've got to be kidding. He said, no, and I'm so ashamed. He said, I, I probably haven't told five people that. But he said, I, I got saved in one of those meetings, and then I knew all of that was just phony except for the Jesus part. Is it possible for a fraud to preach the truth about Jesus? Yeah. And this man had gotten saved and got out of all of that and become a Baptist and was here for a season and then went to another church. So rejoice in the truth that even when someone has a wrong motive or a wrong position, if Jesus is exalted, you're not going to let it lose your joy. But... As I gave you, there are boundaries. It doesn't mean that you embrace everything and that we're going to have them on our pulpit or we're going to have them sing for it. There are boundaries. God told Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites. He didn't want to. But he did. And the city got saved. And God blessed the message even though the messenger wasn't right because God blesses his word Isaiah fifty-five eleven. so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth it shall not return to me void but it the word of God shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper I like this it shall prosper and the thing whereunto I sent it joy is found in Jesus not in the way people perceive you or the way they treat you.
rejoice in the Lord this week. And again, I say rejoice. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would take these simple truths tonight from your word.